I'm Steve Backshaw, and you're listening to the Aussie Wildlife Show. Hey guys, welcome to the Aussie Wildlife Show. Adrian here, and I'm here, of course, with Steve. G'day, guys. And we're very lucky today to have with us once again John Reid. G'day, G'day, John. G'day, fellas. How are you? Very good, mate. So today you want to chat with us about what are the biggest threats to the Australian ecosystem. Absolutely, yeah. I thought I'd inform you guys. If I can inform you guys, I might be informed some others as well. So it's it's something. It's a it's an issue that I've been pretty passionate about now, and a lot of other Arizona ecologists have for probably about fifteen or twenty years. Yeah, and so I thought I'd introduce you to buffalo grass today. Buffalo grass. Buffalo grass. It, it's a grass. So so normally we think of grasses as you know sort of nice things that animals eat, and it looks like a, a fairly inoffensive sort of uh, grass, but it's, in fact it's. Uh, the impact it's having in central Australia and it's spreading to the periphery of Australia is is huge. It's um, yeah, we think it's as serious as as the other threats in the arid zone. So, like up there with things like cats and foxes. Absolutely. So I've spent yeah thirty odd years trying to manage the impacts of cats and foxes and rabbits on the environment, and they're they're sort of the big three that if you ask most rangeland ecologists, what are the big you know the big threats for central Australia. If you control cats and foxes and rabbits, and and then we also sort of threw camels and wild donkeys and and horses into the mix, and also the impact of fires. So so inappropriate fire regimes obviously have huge impacts because Aboriginal burning practices have changed, and the fires are now bigger and more intense than they used to be, and that's that's had a huge impact on the ecology of Central Australia. But uh, this grass, buffalo grass, uh, we think eclipses them all. So for about the last two or three years, myself with a whole range of ecologists from a number of different universities and have put together a table and, and summarised the types of impacts of these different threats and the costs associated with managing them and also sort of the research and the management we do on these things. And uh, yeah, our results come out that buffalo grass is the biggest threat and it's the one we pay least attention to and it's the most difficult one to, to manage. Now I can understand cats and foxes killing wildlife, ungulates destroying the soil, fire regime changes, but how does grass affect our biodiversity and our wildlife? So buffalo grass is one of these species we call a transformer species. So it's an ecological transformer species. It's a grass that it's a so most weeds sort of invade disturbed country and areas where there's you know more water or nutrients you know at the sides of roads and areas you know that have been disturbed. Buffalo grasses aggressively invades undisturbed country, so it'll invade mulgar woodlands, uh, rocky hills, spinifex grasslands, sand hills, a whole range of different country. And it has some quite unique features. It burns a lot hotter than native grasses. So everyone who's sort of spent much time in arid Australia knows that spinifex, a triodia species, burns really hot and it's fire adapted. Well, buffalo grass burns a lot hotter than spinifex. So in places where you have desert oaks or red gums growing over spinifex or, or native grasses, those trees are getting killed by buffalo grass fires. Buffalo grass also regenerates a lot quicker after fire than the native grasses. And so... You get a few buffalo grasses growing in a, in a patch of other grasses or, or woodlands, things like that. A fire goes through, and then the first thing to come back is buffalo grass, and then it forms, a, eventually, it forms a monoculture, and you end up with just these fields of buffalo grass. And the reason we call it a transformer species is that because it just totally takes over all your trees, your shrubs, your native grasses, your your food plants for animals that, that you know, normally native grasses, in, you go to a patch of arid Australia and there might be 20 different species of grasses growing in a few square metres. And some of them seed in summer, some seed in winter. There's Some have got different nutrients and they respond differently to rain. 
when you re replace that with buffalo grass that all grows you know at a certain time after rain and all seeds there you've only got one sort of seed the productivity of the country goes right down you lose all your hollow trees you lose all your shrubs and it's also a really big issue for indigenous australians so aboriginals who are used to hunting you know tracking through sand the buffalo grass grows so thick they can't see snakes in the sand they, they're scared to go hunting they can't see animal tracks but also because it's carrying these big fires it's it's burning their sacred sites it's burning all their food plants it's a huge impact to our wildlife our plants and our culture that's terrifying wow burns how does it burn hotter than other plants so it's it, it grows pretty high so it, it, it can get sort of above knee height and it forms these really tangly tussocks it's perfectly made so spinifex and, and mallee you know are designed to burn buffalo grass is also designed to burn so it, it and it knows it's favored by burning so its seeds are quite fire resistant and its seeds are the first ones to germinate after fire and it so it just forms these monocultures it wasn't brought to australia to be a weed it was brought to australia deliberately um csiro it actually introduced a whole lot of different cultivars. I think it's over 70 different cultivars were introduced as a pasture plant primarily. So some of the Australian uh, rangelands weren't prime cattle country. They had, you know, acacias and things which aren't fantastic for cattle. But if you rip the acacias out and you put buffalo grass in, then pastoralists can, can benefit in the short term. They're now increasing the number of pastoralists that are saying, hang on, we used to have you know, these mulga trees, things like that, used to provide drought forage for our cattle, but now it's all been replaced by buffalo grass, and the buffalo is so vigorous, it actually mines the soils of nutrients. So when it first starts growing, it grows, it's really nutritious, but then it keeps on growing and it, it just sucks the nutrients out of the ground, and, and buffalo grass pastures become a lot less productive through time. But then nothing else is going to grow in place of it because it's already killed the it, soil... That's right. It's it's taken over, and it still it, it perpetuates these these fires, these fire, and it's the fire regime. It's a it's the one it's the sort of left right hook combination. It's that it grows really fast, then it carries more fire because it's more fire. It, it that sort of reinforces. It's a, a feedback loop with the fire, and uh, and so that's the reason why absolutely cats and foxes are terrible. You know they eat a lot of wildlife, but you can have a whole lot of feral cats, and they don't affect your red gum trees or your desert oaks or your you know, your native tomatoes and things like that. Um, they, the, the issue with buffalo and, you know, camels. Camels cause big problems to, to sandalwood trees and quandongs and, you know, a few of the desert tree species, but they don't change the ecosystem. Buffalo grass, what the, the risk with buffalo grass and the threat, well, it's the reality of buffalo grass. It just transforms these ecosystems. And now, every time I look at any TV show filmed in Central Australia, Alice Springs, Uluru, doesn't matter. The, the dominant plant now is buffalo grass. And... People have tried to control it. So, so Uluru is a classic example. It's World Heritage. It's Australian National Park. It's recognised as a weed. We'll try and control it. We can't control it. We don't have the tools to control it. it it's better than us. Even in those, those iconic places where we can throw resources at it, we can't control it. And it's, it's really frustrating that, that really the control of buffalo grass and the preservation of hundreds of species of plants and vertebrates and insects and things like that it's really put down to Aboriginal rangers. So, you know, you go and control this buffalo grass, but no amount of spraying and weeding, you know, it's, it's too good for that. It needs, it needs better techniques. It needs better control. Where does it originate from? So it's from the Middle East, um, and so northern Africa and, and the Arabian Peninsula, and it's, it's also a massive weed. Um, 
in the United States. So in, in Mexico and New Mexico, those areas where you have those big saguaro cacti and things like that, it's actually carrying fire through that country and burning these, these hundred year old cacti or several hundred year old cacti and changing that ecosystem as well. It's a weed in Hawaii and it's, um, it was mainly introduced into Central Australia, but it's now spreading and it's, it's hybridizing really quickly and it's becoming more frost sensitive. And so it's turning up in places like Cape Jarvis and you know Victoria, where it never used to be and wasn't predicted to be. But the main threat, anywhere around Port Augusta now, between Port Pirie and Port Augusta, on the side of the road, it's virtually buffalo grass all the way. So that's, get- that's vehicles traveling that down is it it's it's vehicles it can get moved on stock crates you know or um yeah and so every time now you roll your sweat you go camping in in central australia you roll your swag out roll your tent out what you're picking up seeds roll it out again and it you know it's you know it's, it's a classic weedy species you get a couple of seeds growing and that plant can produce thousands of seeds that can last for 10 years until the conditions are right and yeah it's it's the the biggest problem is it's it's this um because it can invade undisturbed country. So you, you see it, it starts off on the sides of the roads and I've seen it um, in the APY lands where I've monitored rock wallabies. I've been going there for 25 years. I've, some of the colonies I went to initially, there was no buffalo grass at all. Then you see a few plants along the road and then it forms like a, a hedge along the road and then it spreads out and you know, every year it goes another 10 meters or 20 meters and it's just like a, a cancer spreading across the landscape. And yeah, we're, we're powerless to stop it. How long has it been in Australia? So I think it was introduced from about the 1930s, uh, but it was still being introduced. It's still being spread in Queensland and in Western Australia. By now? Pastoralists. But now, right now. And it's not declared as a weed of national significance. In fact, at the, the last election, the government put some money into trying to control a blight. Like a, there's a problem with it in Queensland where it's dying out and there's a, there's a dieback and they've invested a lot of money to try and stop the dieback rather than... <laughs> and, and I understand the value. It supports a, it supports a you know a multi billion dollar cattle enterprise, and there there are some pastures that are now dependent upon it. And what I and some others are saying is, we're never going to wipe it out. We shouldn't wipe it out. But what we should do is stop it spreading. You know, if you plant it in your paddock and it stays in your paddock, that's fine. But if it jumps the fence and it goes into a national park or an indigenous protected area and spreads and spreads and just so. We think that what we should be doing is looking for tools that either s- slow it down, slow it spread, or the other thing that um, is potentially really useful is that um, Australian termites don't tend to eat buffalo grass. So what Australian termites do is when you've got dry grass, dry native grasses, in, in the space of a year or so, they remove all that vegetation material and that country will no longer carry a fire. But when you've got buffalo grass, it stays there and you can see all the other native grasses have been eaten out and the buffalo's still there and it, then it perpetuates this fire regime. If we can look at introducing termites from the Middle East or some other way of breaking that down, it actually puts those nutrients back in the soil, it's better for the country and it stops this fire thing. But it, what the problem is, the missing link is, it's not recognised as a weed because the politicians are too scared to declare it as a weed because it might upset some pastoralists and it's, and it make, it's, a, it's a hard thing to do. We, de- we don't have controls for it, so if you declare it a weed, then you should come up with controls. But, yeah, I'm just frustrated by putting your head in the sand. won't fix it. We need to declare it and get on with solving the issue. That's so strange, isn't it? I mean, it's definitely a bushland weed. There's no denying that. It's not an ambiguous term, bushland weed, but I guess if you're a pastoralist, then it's desirable. Uh, well, as I said, some pastoralists think it's desirable, but in South Australia it was actually declared a weed and many of our northern pastoralists have said, we prefer to have our range of native species, you know, 
they provide better, they're more nutritious and, and the range is better for our livestock than having this one plant come in and dominate it. So there are quite a few progressive pastoralists who are saying, no, no, we don't want this thing in here. It's, it's really, um, I'll, I'll probably offend somebody, it's a, it's a lazy man's pasture. It's, it's a, it will grow, it doesn't matter how hard you flog the country, it'll still grow. You can, you can graze it down to its stalks, you get a little sprinkle of rain and it greens up. It's got huge, huge root systems. It responds really quickly. And if you're a if you're a lazy pastoralist and you want anything to grow on some shit country that you flogged, buffalo grass is for you. But um, <laughs> if you want to manage your country sustainably and you want to get the most productivity out of it, then you promote the native grasses. Persa have got it on their website as a declared plant. But the import, sale, and road transport of buffalo grass in South Australia is prohibited. Correct. So that's the case in South Australia, in uh, West Australia, and in Queensland. It's still permissible, and I think in some cases it's still encouraged to spread it, and wow. uh, which is ironic. And I've got some figures for you guys. Um, when we were trying to rank the impacts of buffalo and and the cost of managing it, and the the, the problem with buffalo grass is that. Once it gets established, it's almost impossible to control with herbicides, and you've got to go back and back and back and keep spraying and weeding and, and digging it out. And we, what we did, we costed out how the costs of maintaining a 10,000 hectare area, which is an area the size of some of the big sanctuaries that are now built in, in Central Australia, um, and managing a sanctuary for rabbits. So that means building a rabbit fence around it, getting rid of the rabbits, and keeping it rabbit-free for 20 years. Doing the same thing with camels. So having it fencing off in an area of 10,000 hectares from camels and keeping it camel free. The same thing with cats and foxes. The same thing with managing fire. So having, having the appropriate fire regimes over that area. And we did it for buffalo grass as well. And I'll, I'll read out the numbers. I've got them here that the cheapest one to manage is fire. And we reckon $418,000 will, will manage that country for you for 20 years. Camel, or actually camels are even, even cheaper, $280,000. So you can build a sort of a three-bar plain fence. It's easy to get rid of camels. If there's not a water in there, that's, that's pretty easy. Rabbits are about six times that. So we're talking $1,270,000 to keep rabbits out of there. Cats and foxes are double rabbits. It's, you know, you've got a bigger fence and, and it's harder to, harder to build, more expensive to build. And they're at um, $2 million for 20 years. Buffalo grass, $100 million. It's like more than an order of magnitude greater, the effort. And that's, that's based on experience from places like the Desert Wildlife Park and some places um, in Outer Springs and other areas where they've been managing buffalo grass for the last 20 years. You know, this is how much it costs, you know, to make, you know, to do 10 hectares or 100 hectares. And uh, so that just sort of puts the scale in there. It's that hard to control, yet we're not even looking at control techniques for it that are effective quite the opposite in other states mm, absolutely and and so they've done risk assessment so this is not just a couple of academics and and passionate bush people csro have done some assessments of the most dangerous and damaging weeds in the lake air basin in queensland in the pilbara buffalo grass comes up top all the time and and the most expensive to control buffalo grass what can we do about it we can't do anything about it what's the next one down let's tackle that and so yeah it's, it's really frustrating when you see national priorities and things like that Buffalo's not even mentioned. Most people don't even know about it. And it's, and it's there's that, actually another thing too, if you want to get a little bit philosophical, um, a couple of hundred years ago, us white fellas moved in and we brought our livestock and our, our rabbits and things like that and displaced a lot of indigenous people. And you're looking back on that now saying, how the hell did that happen? You know, that was, that was pretty ordinary. That was very ordinary. 
we're sort of doing the same thing now. This we are perpetuating this thing that's actually trashing our country just as bad as you know those original invasive species did, and the culture, uh, and and really cutting out. So a lot of my indigenous ranger friends they used to go out you know, hunting goannas and eating bush tomatoes and bush foods and digging honey out. They can't do that anymore in areas that are uh, infested with buffalo. The native t- the tomatoes and currants and things don't grow anymore. They can't find the goannas. The goannas aren't living there because there's no bare ground between the tussocks. And yeah, it's 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 their their lifestyle was being affected. And yeah, we're sitting back and watching it. And it's just crazy that it's taking over trees and killing trees and like you say, trees with tree hollows. Mm-hmm. You, know, you can't replace that. And a range of landscapes too. So if you drive into Alice Springs, for example, you know, in those magnificent McDonald ranges, they are now pretty much buffalo grass. You know, a lot of them is buffalo grass. There, there, there are obviously some, still some trees there, but those trees, every time there's fire, you know, um, one of our co-authors, Christine Sleisinger, did some work there in the McDonald ranges and, and the, the high intensity fires there a few years ago knocked out these, you know, century old trees and things like that where, you know, they've survived decades and decades or centuries of, of normal fires but when you get buffalo grass it's, it's too intense um so it's, it's just yeah desert oaks desert oaks normally have a um like a halo around them where there's not grass growing but buffalo grass doesn't respect that halo it grows right around the base of them and, and you know turns them into infernos so it's just a, it's hard to hate a grass but if you want to hate a grass buffalo's the one to hate yeah that's it's the crazy. one to hate and like it's your hardest chance as well when you put your figures to it a dollar value to how much it is to actually control that that's that's a lot of money yeah and you look at uh, government grants and government priorities you know what are we doing you know and it's great that that we're putting money into removing cats from areas and having sanctuaries and you know we have some awesome organizations Australian Wildlife Conservancy Bush Heritage you know building these big exclosures to manage cats and foxes but in the long term if you manage the cats and foxes and the buffalo gets in there it's it's, it's irrelevant, yeah, because we can't control it. We, we know how to control cats and foxes. To certain, it's difficult, it's challenging, but we have some tools and we've invested money into those tools. We've invested money into um, rabbit management. And so, you know, 80 years ago before, or 50 years ago, before we had um, myxomatosis and Khaleesi virus, rabbits were, were, would undoubtedly have been the top threat. We invested money, we researched, we brought these diseases in, and those threats have now been largely controlled. But now we've got this other thing and it's just staring us in the face and we've just got to get on with it. Do you have an hour of recovery? Uh, so Buffalo is in that area and it comes down to Roxby, so people camping and, and cars coming down. And it would, so there's been a really active Buffalo Buster group up there for the last yeah, 15 years, to my knowledge, and in quite a few towns where people are aware, they're, they're keeping out of those places. But it's, it's still it's spreading. Cooper now, there was no Buffalo in Cooper that I can remember 20 years ago. Now, get your eye in, all of Coopedy, uh, Glen Dambo, um, and, and the real risk is that there's a big organisation called the Buffalo Free GVD, the Great Victoria Desert. It's a huge desert you know, north of Nullarbor, and um, really, really important to keep buffalo grass out of that, so there's a lot of attention. Is, and you've really got to control it at those places like Coopedy and Glen Dambo where your access going in there, because yeah, it doesn't take long, a couple of wet years, and yeah, She's away, and you'll you have another huge area of desert taken over by, by this grass. Wow. So it's a matter of just staying on it when, when you see a new outbreak. But once you're infested, good luck. 
Yeah, so so to South Australia's credit, it was designated as a weed, and a lot of the landscapes board, and it used to be NRM boards, have, have really taken it on and are managing it proactively and, and seeking it out. And you, you'll see signs on the road, you know, look out for buffalo grass, which is fantastic. Um, it should be a national thing, and that's that really what that's doing. That's that's holding it back. That's yeah, it's trying to stop it invading new areas. We haven't got any way at the moment of controlling it through yeah, like a quarter of a central Australia that's infested with. With buffalo, and that's so, quite amazing. Like when you think, <clears throat> uh, did you say it's in America as well? It's a weed, yep. and uh, a, a lot of other places as well. And you're kind of like, no one's found a way of controlling it yet. You can imagine there's people putting it, or countries putting a lot of money in to try and control it. They're somewhere. not. They're not. That's the thing. Um, I mean, Australia should be doing it. It's it's worse here than anywhere else. But in the Sonoran Desert in in America, it's a problem as well. And they're looking at us saying, "What are you doing about it?" And we're looking at them saying, "What are you doing about it?" And 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 it's because of the it's the politically vexed issue because it's a it's a pasture grass and it was also it was also introduced um, to some areas including the APY lands including a road cutting near Port Pirie that I can remember them doing it as a dust suppressant because um, yeah back in the in the 80s and 90s or early 90s um, there was a lot of glaucoma and, and eye disease due to dust and buffalo grass grows really well in disturbed areas but it grows too well you know it was planted in, in aboriginal communities it was planted along roadsides and railway lines where they'd made cuttings to stop the dust and erosion but then it just spreads from there and yeah it's a, it's hard because there's some really good people who who on the best of advice actually planted it and thinking they were doing the right thing and yeah it's it, it, it's a shame to see it now but it's, yeah she's out of control they've really got to control it because um you know, by the sounds of it, it's destroying the soil as well. So regeneration of the areas where it is now sounds expensive as well. So you're not going to get rid of it and all of the native stuff grow back up? or Well, that, that's a real issue. If it's established and it almost becomes a monoculture, and if that stays there for 10 years, 15, your soil seed bank will disappear. So, yeah. And even if you can get rid of it, then, you know, the, an issue with weeding is you get rid of weed, you've got to replace it. And, you're, and so it's it's best to get rid of it or get rid of it slowly or and, and make sure it doesn't spread but you you want to get you keep your native seeds going in there but if yeah once it forms a monoculture and it's there for 10 20 years and supports five or six fires none of your native seeds will be left and it will be super super hard so yeah the sooner we get it's, it's like any of these these new invasive things the sooner you get onto it the better and the, the sooner we sort of sit and go oh it's too hard it's um it's, the problem's getting worse and worse and it's only south australia really that are trying to do something they've got a five-year strategic plan correct for it so but, but uh and that's thwarted on the national stage we've we, south australia actually made a push to have it declared as a weed of national significance and it ticked all the boxes by a mile you know any other weed that impacts a certain number of threatened species or ecological communities automatically gets there but this one they go mm, too hard because so, it's used as a food for correct because we've actually brought it in and, and there are some government agencies that are actively encouraging it and uh yeah so so i, I guess it's it's really similar to some other issues that we deal with you know like cats and things like that you know all cats bad no, not all cats aren't bad a cat inside your house it's fine it's the feral cats that are a problem all buffalo grass isn't bad if you've got buffalo grass growing around your boars and it doesn't move from there and you know it keeps soil together and your cows can have a bit of a feed that's fine but it's when it spreads it's it's a nuanced thing so yeah it's some people think oh if you if you think of any biological control you're going to be wiping it out and, and removing it we're never going to remove buffalo grass we're never going to remove every feral cat or or every rabbit you know but we've just got to try and put a lid on it and that's i guess that's what we're really calling for that's what the study was about was to try and highlight the risks 
and the costs and just say, hey, you know, we should be doing something about this. So in the Middle East where it comes from, what keeps it at bay there? Is it a combination of the termites and some kind of other herbivore? Or? So that's a really good question because it's the first question anyone should ask when dealing with invasive species. And the correct answer would be, well, let's go across and have a look. Let's go and see if it's got parasites or herbivores or, or what does it. And that's exactly what you do with, with cane toads or with rabbit. You know, we, we didn't get Khaleesi virus. Um, we got Khaleesi virus by going to where, rab- where it's killing rabbits and brought it across and mix on things like that. That's exactly what the Australian government should be doing. They said, let's go and see what controls it in its native habitat and see if we can adapt some of that to keep it keep lid on it here. Just, take, just needs a decision, just needs a, a bit of um, determination to, to address it. So. Now, while we've got you, and I know you've got to fly off um, very, very shortly, but there's a thing that I've been noticing a lot on social media, and I know I shouldn't pay it any attention, but there's a lot of people that love wildlife, and collectively it's a wonderful thing, but there's a lot of conflict within those people, particularly since they're very passionate people. And one of the things that brings up the most conflict is the idea of culling a native animal. And you're the pragmatic ecologist. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, you're someone that's dedicated their life to protecting biodiversity. What do you think when you hear people say that any time it's suggested that a, a native animal should be culled, that that's absolutely wrong and that humans are the problem and all these, any kind of other argument to justify their position when being a scientist, the science says that you're not into killing animals, but we need to cap this number of these particular animals at this particular time in this particular location, according to the data, for the betterment of the population and the ecosystem. I think you just answered it. It's all good. <clears throat> I think you, <laughs> I think you did, because, because before you answered that and you said, what do I say when people say that, I was going to lean across and punch you in the nose. That, <laughs> so that would have been my answer. Because oh, please, you, let me get my camera out. <laughs> because you do, I mean, you do get that. It doesn't matter whether you're talking about koalas or kangaroos or, or cats. You know, it's not the cat's fault. It's not the kangaroo's fault. It's, you know, it's people's fault and, and things like that. that. But you answered the question, um, ecosystems need balance. That's... You know, it's how they've always been. Things go up and down, but they need they need a balance. When things get out of balance, things go horribly hor- horribly wrong. And you know, whether you're talking about koalas on Kangaroo Island, koalas have been introduced to Kangaroo Island. There's too many. Ko- there's no predators there. There's too many koalas there. We've known that for 40 years. We've been trying to quietly control koala numbers there. Of course, they should be controlled. It's you know because you have too many koalas. They destroy the trees, then they they die of starvation, and that's the worst death. It's exactly the same situation with macropods. You you mentioned kangaroos. Um, Throughout Australia, in the last drought, so 2018-19, there were millions, over 5 million kangaroos died of starvation. Died of starvation. And a kangaroo dying of starvation, you sit down and watch a kangaroo die of starvation, it is horrible. They're just bags of bones, they can't get up. It's not because they haven't got water, there's water there, there's no food left. There's no food left, and that's our fault because we haven't managed the total grazing pressure. In some places, we've got lots of sheep in there, and that's part of the problem. In most cases, it's because we haven't managed the kangaroos. So kangaroos have died en masse in national parks. In most national parks in Australia, have got way too many kangaroos, and they're destroying the vegetation. Your, your fantastic little reserve here, if you had 20 kangaroos in here, you wouldn't have half the understory. 
and it's been shown time and time again you ex- put an exclosure keep kangaroo numbers down and and the plants flourish and then the wildlife flourishes and it's absolutely true that we because we have elected to remove dingoes we have elected to clear some landscape and make the country more suitable for kangaroos by creating more grasslands and things like that doesn't matter whether you're in the middle of Canberra or if you're in a national park um, on the outskirts of any any city in Australia or you're in the in the rangelands or on farms generally there are a lot more kangaroos than there used to be and it's not good for them and it's not good for the country and it's and it's it's not good for yeah animal welfare etc and uh, um, for the last couple of years I've been working with a group of scientists and a group of lobbyists and we have actually put together a, a statement to address this very issue and so it's been endorsed by a whole range of groups of people like myself who are scientifically trained but our passion is looking after the environment or our passion is animal welfare and so groups like the Ecological Society of Australia, the Australian Mammal Society, the Australian Wildlife Society, a whole lot of groups like that um, us and you know, bush heritages and other groups like that are saying we've got too many kangaroos, we should be managing them and this is the hard bit. The best way we believe to manage kangaroos is to have them shot by accredited marksmen. And we think the best thing to do is to utilize that for human consumption, meat for human consumption. And in fact, groups like RSPCA and, and, and other groups will say it's far better for a kangaroo to be shot in the head than to die of starvation. And really that's the alternative. So. Yeah, it, it becomes really frustrating to have really well-meaning, passionate people. And there is, I, people, you've got to be passionate. If you're not passionate, then you're just wasting oxygen. And but if you can, if you can direct that passion to where it's, it's really useful, then it's it's fantastic. And sometimes it's an awareness thing. But yeah, you get those people that say we shouldn't, we should never shoot a kangaroo. You know, that's just we we just, we shouldn't do it. Sit sit them down and watch a kangaroo dying of starvation, and then say, all right. There's one under every bush here, and the whole landscape stinks. And there's 30 drowning in a, da- you know, a muddy dam and things like that. And there's no grass left. And all the birds that used to be here have gone because there's, because there's no shrubs left for them because of the kangaroos. And that really brings it home. So, so that's one that I guess that was the motivation for us to get all these different groups who have been saying this sort of quietly, and and we've all come together and said the same thing. So we've got academic groups, we've got animal welfare people, we've got indigenous groups, and they're all saying. To have kangaroos dying of starvation by their millions is wrong, it's inhumane, it's wasteful. We should be um, managing them and the very best way to manage them is is accredited shooting. And and so this is not is definitely not being driven by the kangaroo industry or by the pet food makers or anything like that. There it's it's been driven by science and understanding and and passion. So And how good would it be like um again like if we have to kill these animals none of us want to kill animals as you said none of us want to but to protect everything that we've done um probably wrong up to now to to try and bring that back you have to cull them and then we can actually use them um and and eat a million kangaroos a year or something like that and use them for food actually cut possibly cutting down sheep cows and things like that that are grazing as well it could all help in all sorts of ways surely sure so so a, a terminology Cull is normally shoot and let light. Like you know, you cull, you you, you kill something, and is, harvest is actually to, to use it. So 
you know what we're advocating is, is harvesting, Harvest. sustainable harvesting, and and so every so the Australian kangaroo population is surveyed nationally um, every year. It's one of the longest running, um, most scientifically credible monitoring for for animal for wildlife populations, and we know pretty much what happens in droughts. We know what happens with harvest. They set a, a, a quota. And that quote, we never reach the quota. There is not the market. Australians are not eating enough kangaroo meat or using kangaroo products. And that's the reason why we've got this issue. There's not enough money to pay the kangaroo harvesters. And so perversely, the people who are campaigning against eating kangaroo meat, then the kangaroo industry falls down. And then what happens is destruction permits are issued and you have people who aren't accredited going out and and it's, it's, it's not what you want or you get thousands of kangaroos smashed on roads if anyone drove to broken hill or you know through through the outback in the in the last drought there was just you can almost hopscotch from kangaroo carcasses it's terrible it's it's shocking so absolutely um i believe for animal welfare grounds for for um for for food security and things like that we should be harvesting kangaroos and the other thing you mentioned too was about um replacing sheep and cattle kangaroos will never replace sheep and cattle as, as the main food source or land use but every kangaroo that's harvested and eaten that can replace a sheep on that property your your carbon dioxide and your methane levels are, are going down it, it has um, your carbon sequestration in the store is increasing it, it has all those flow on benefits so absolutely I eat kangaroo whenever I can and and yeah I've in, in the last few years after being someone who used to eat absolutely anything I've, I've really I, I don't eat factory farm I don't eat pigs or chickens or that sort of stuff or grain fed anything like that I, I absolutely think that the best thing we should be doing is embracing yeah sustainable kangaroo meat brilliant thanks so much mate very very well awesome. said you've got to fly off but mate thanks again for your time good to see you always great to see you um, drop in again next time you're in town man Good on you. We'll do many more of these. Great talking to you guys. Awesome. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening, guys.